crying? Maybe. Oh, Are you crying for Tony's game? Yeah, Tony's game. It is just, sad. Just, Wait, what? Just sad. Don't be sad. I mean, it's just uh, it's like a pity party on there, and I just can't help but weep. Oh. It's like I'm 20 over. After two 84 holes. yesterday, boys. 84 yesterday. It's coming oh, back. Front nine. No, I I was actually on the back. I was even through five on the back and then just kind of like it was fucking raining and even the rain gloves weren't working. So are you playing tomorrow? Uh, yeah, there's a tournament tomorrow and then I'll play on Sunday as well. And I'm going to oh, go so- take a lesson Monday and then Tuesday I'm leaving on a jet plane. So when when it comes when it comes to a tournament, do you did your bum like clench up and get a squeaky bum, or do you let loose? Uh, well, I'm gonna try not to give a fuck. How about that? Yeah, because if not, I'll uh I'll have this really small violin over here on Twitter. Well, the upside is at least I can putt. So true, <laughs> but oh damn, he just came at your neck. <laughs> I can't putt and shoot, shoot three under. No, no. So that's a, that's the depressing so thing. So if for we you. put you two together. What would you shoot? I don't fucking tag me in on the putting green. <laughs> All right, Tony, Harry, Sam, welcome to No Putts Given episode 18-0. Today we got Dean Snell. He's cutting straight through the bullshit in the golf ball industry today. We got a company coming to America that you're definitely going to want to pay attention to. And Titleist is doing Titleist things. Let's get it. Oh, yeah. No Putts Given is powered by My Golf Spy, the most extensive reviews in golf. Before you buy, My Golf Spy. Nine million readers do it every year. Check us out. Give me just a second here. Just got an email from Puma. <laughs> Wait a second. We I gotta listening. see what my script says from Puma. <laughs> <laughs> they sent me a script. <laughs> You wore that last week. <laughs> yeah, we need to get the whole full line in. Come on. That's that's a Mizuno hat. <laughs> hey, let me ask you a question real quick. You know, uh, Bryson DeChambeau is playing some new supposedly graphite shaft in his irons that supposedly can tell the difference between wet and dry conditions. The shaft? The shaft, no. How do it know? Won't not. I, I will not know. I don't know. the button to say, oh, it wet. It's like it's How like a woman. Know? It's like a woman when they when they say and then you get tender boobs or stiff Wait knees. a second. Oh, it's All right, cut this. Like, what Whoa. in the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Tony, what is the difference? How does a shaft know between wet and dry conditions? Yeah, I think it, I, I hope it was just one of those things where he went was freeform talking and just <sighs> sentences jumbled together and implied one thing that he doesn't actually believe because to, to sort of suggest that a shaft improves the consistency of ball flight in wet conditions is... Yeah, you're not going to find a lot of support for that idea from uh, anybody who's ever engineered anything in the golf world. What so is, what is yeah. the shaft? It's yeah, so it's LA Golf Partners, you know, LA Golf Shaft. Mm-hmm. It's called Rebar. So it's I'm guessing I, I don't have a lot of details, but um, super super duper stiff graphite is probably what I assume. I'm like that, especially with his wedges. Bryson has has been doing that for a while, going stiffer and heavier. To kind of offset, right? If you've ever tried a one-length iron, when you get into that nine iron and that pitching wedge, that that thing just wants to get up in the air because of the extra length. Here's the thing, so, man. I don't know. Bryson's not wrong very often. I mean, the things that he finds, we find in testing a lot of times, right? So, hey, you never know. Maybe there's a button on the shaft, like Harry said, that you say, "All right, conditions are wet." 
It just is like a transformer. It just transforms into something completely but what, different. But but I'm trying to think of it, and I know we're just kind of joking around. But from a technical side, like how do you even? We're we're doing the wet wedge test, and I'm like, how how do you even? You, it's hard enough for a golf club company to to move water off the face of a golf club when the no is it wet. is it a wet condition? Well, so yeah, is I, it like wet ground, wet ball, wet face, or is it like raining? <laughs> So this is this is where I'm guessing it was sort of like this world salad, word salad kind of misspeaking kind of thing. So theoretically, right, the reason he would be switching to a shaft like this is just sort of more consistency across the board, right? Like he just delivers it the same every time. And so if you're if you're more consistent in your delivery, you're going to be more consistent in your ball flight, regardless of conditions. But the way kind of the quote was worded sort of hinted that he was saying that it, it's more consistent in wet and dry conditions and you know theoretically based on anything that i know or anybody i've ever spoken to knows your the shaft really isn't going to improve consistency in wet conditions above and beyond like just the fact that he's more consistent in general how about that all right Can well, we give him that i'll give him that you know <clears throat> anyway we weren't planning on starting with that but we had to because I just forgot that there was a shaft out there that knew the difference between. It's a pretty me. cool name, I think. Uh, rebar. Rebar. I love the name. I thought ultra stiff graphite shaft right when I heard it. So, good job, LA Golf Shafts. I w- I would have thought steel as rebar tends to be steel, but okay. Hey, but if you're gonna rename graphite into this yeah. steel game and replace steel, replace it with rebar. Damn right. Well, right. here's here's I think kind of the bigger piece, right? And and John Wall, Jonathan Wall mentioned this uh, in his tweet like bryson conceivably could be 14 clubs it probably is right all 14 clubs graphite this week right um which is on the pga tour basically unheard of and we've kind of talked about the the tpt iron shaft that they've been kicking around for you know quite a while now and that we're hearing it's probably going to be you know 20 2020 release but this idea like hey we we may finally have a graphite iron shaft that people on tour think is viable and can kind of remove the stigma around graphite shaft for better high swing plate, high swing speed players, whatever you want to call it, right? This idea that graphite is only for seniors and slow swing speed players trying to get rid of that, open up graphite for the masses, the gearhead, the hardcore guys. Um, it's not going to matter because here's the problem. Like I think they will eventually solve the iron graphite game to where it's almost as good or better than steel. But the problem is there's eight clubs in a set and eight times $7 for steel shaft equals X, right? Eight times $50 equals a shit ton more money. And when you relate that back to a a game that the equipment is getting more expensive, it just adds another layer of cost that the average golfer doesn't think it's worth the money to pay for. And I don't think that's going to change ever unless they get the cost down. And everything in, in golf is, is small gains, right? You you pay a lot to get a little. And you mentioned $50 a shaft for graphite. No, 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 no. When we start, when we talk, you know, maybe that's kind of some of what the, the recoil stuff was. But what TPT, for example, which is really hoping to tackle that that tour market, they're, they're substantially more than a $50 upcharge. All right, so let's take a sub-70 set of irons, complete set, fully built. Is going to cost less than just the eight TPT shafts, or probably yeah, rebar shafts. Yeah, five hundred beans yeah. for a full in a whole set, set of irons. Yeah. It's just, it's not, it's not going to transition <laughs> well to the average consumer. But anyway, niche, niche market, right? Yeah, and, for sure. You know what, what happens if, if, and we're thinking way out here in theoreticals. But let's say TPT has a viable shaft that actually performs for better players. 
or or LA golf shafts, right? Let's, they're working on one. I don't know what the retail price is that going to be is going to be when when rebar hits the market. But if you have a, a brand like PXG, right, which is already positioned in that premium off market and says, hey, all right, yeah, we'll we'll throw these in for for just a hundred dollars more a stick. <laughs> You know, may, maybe that finds an audience. What is the and cost? Again, every, What's eight hundred bucks when you're spending? 3, What's the cost of a PXG set at that point? I mean, so figure what? Do you want to do black ones too? Should we? Should I think we Ra- I think Randy from Fried Eggs could sell his Accord and still not buy the set of PXGs. <laughs> Does he still have <laughs> yeah, I, think, <laughs> I think I think you're you're five six thousand a set at that oh point. So just for the yeah. irons. Yeah. Hey, that Honda Accord, Randy. Jeez, I would. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to the next topic, and that's kind of a trip that we just went on and an article that just got published about a company called Enesis Golf uh, owned by Decathlon. And when we said that there's a company coming to America that you're going to want to pay attention to, this is the one we're talking about. So basically, if you imagine Dick Sporting Goods of France, that's kind of what this is in a simple analogy. But in reality, it's something drastically different, in my opinion. Um, they are coming to America. Already have a store in San Francisco, yep. right? Yep. And then they're going to be Seven, expen- what, three, right? Yeah, they three have in the Bay Area, one. I believe. And they've yeah. put those up in the last six months ballpark. So they're planning on spreading their wings really quickly in the U.S. And why it matters, you know, for the average guy that goes in and buys golf equipment from Dicks, the experience is, you know to be honest, not very good no. for a serious golfer. Re- you know, rarely is there anybody even in the golf department to help you. If he <laughs> is, he doesn't even play golf sometimes. Uh, the last time we were there, they kicked my kids off the putting green um, for putting, you know. Yeah. Um, the simulator <laughs> lights are always off. Yeah. I mean, so not the best experience, right? <clears throat> and why I bring that up is Enesis, while it is the quote-unquote Dick Sporting Goods of France, does a incredible job of creating experience, right? So I guess the best way to juxtapose this for people to understand, at least from what my value, the value I think this company provides is a lot of companies start off being about, you know, the people, right? The consumer, the customer. And once they transition to fully becoming a bottom line profit company, it's really hard to go back and go, yeah, we really give a shit about the consumer and customer. You can say that, but there are plenty of OEMs that I've seen, you know, no need to really name them. You probably can name them on your own and go, yeah, I don't really think they care about the customer anymore. All they're doing is pumping out product, pumping out product. And it becomes about profits over the people. And this company, so, I mean, it's one of the most impressive interactions I've ever had in the time I've been with my golf spy and when we learned about who they were, their ethos and philosophy based on their company, right? Yeah. And it was refreshing as hell to listen to. And they weren't bullshitting. I mean, what they said, they meant, and they back it up with you know what they do. So Sam just visited the Ennesis, I don't know what you want to call that. What are you, the golf the park, golf correct? Park, yeah, they have this massive golf park in Lille, France. It's in the northern end of France. And they've got literally everything from a retail space where they can sell you the product, but they've also got their entire team there. So they've got R&D, marketing, consumer experience. Everything is in this one house. They've got their design lab. And then they've even got a six-hole golf course, a three-hole golf course, putting and chipping. They've got – it's literally a golf park where you can have – they even have a restaurant where you can have lunch. Yeah, it's pretty – I mean – and. 
while that sounds really cool and yeah. it's a cool experience, there's a purpose behind that, right? right? So it's to be able to have everything in one environment. The designers are all in one area. They throw the products that they're, mm. you know, 3D modeling off to golfers and off to people to they go can test walk them. right out the back door and test it right on the golf course. And that's, that's the really unique experience about Decathlon as a whole is that it's not just Inesis either. It's all of their brands. So their mountain store is in the mountains and their backyard is their test ground. Yeah, so how we came to learn about this company was as organic as I guess you can get. I mean, basically, we saw their shoe. They showed us a shoe, and we went, eh, big deal. And then we put it on and, and tested it and went, Well, we, we saw it, and it was like, ah, uh, just an everyday cheap. It looks cheap. It does look cheap. So I think it looks we, good. I was like, meh. From afar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I was like, it's kind it's, of the Skechers problem. Good. Yeah, kind yeah. of in a, in a way, but it's in my opinion probably a little bit less fashionable than sketches. Um, <laughs> you think it, so? It, it, yeah, I think so. I would disagree with that. But Brutal. I'm no well, here's the problem expert. with Skechers. That big S stamped on the side tells people, "Dude, you're wearing Skechers, yeah. right?" With Enesis, they've got enough color palettes and things like that to go. Oh, that's pretty cool. Like that red one that they had looks cool. The white black combo yeah. looks pretty cool. Nevertheless, we put on the shoe, and up to this date, it is still the most mm-hmm. comfortable rated shoe we've ever tested. Yeah. So we knew they were onto something, and then we thought, all right, we've got to learn more about this product and then this company and then what else they do. And then they did a rangefinder that was really good. But then we learned about their philosophy on how they go about making equipment and then selling that equipment. And when you walk into their stores, one of the coolest things I ever heard from a retail standpoint, which is a total 180 compared to how the U.S. market sells golf equipment is you walk in and they quickly kind of identify, are right, you beginner, intermediate, or advanced, right. right? If you're a beginner, you go to this section of the golf shop, this or this, mm-hmm. right? And there's totally different products right. for what level you are as a golfer. And that's something we've kind of preached for a long time. So 43-inch drivers for beginners, not 46-inch and these crazy million different options. They simplify it for the average golfer, you know, they, they build the products for the actual type of golfer you are, which is a cool philosophy. Well, and I think one of the interesting things is, is they come at it from a different angle where they, they understand that beginner golfers won't really know what to look for, whereas I feel like in some companies in America, they take advantage of that. So they're saying, okay, well, you don't, know, you don't even know what you need to buy, so let's just sell you the most expensive shit. Well, once again, that's the thing I loved about them. So they put the consumer first, right. and that's one of our hashtags, right? Consumer first, and they don't put the profits first, right? And it's so much more about building the relationship with the customer than it is about just selling them a product. You know, From each point in this buying process, they're, they're attempting to put the best performing products for your skill level in your hands so that, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the money will come eventually because over the, the consumer life cycle, they're going to stick around and they're going to know that they can trust the brand rather than just, well, oh, well, they just sold me product. Well, take it like this. like They take recreation and the experience very seriously, right. right? And if you are serious about recreation, whether it be golf or whatever it is, you take that serious and then you experience a good experience with that company, you're more likely to work with that company again, right? Right. So or, if I'm a beginner, I'm going to go in, I'm going to start with the 100 series and then I might improve enough to say, hey, okay, well... I liked my 100 irons. Maybe I'll move into the intermediate section once my handicap hits a certain level, and you can you can build a a, a rapport, I guess, with with the consumers really easily with this kind of model. Yeah, that's a good point. And go ahead, Tony. It's 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 a different when you think about it, right? With with the Catalan, 
and, and the Innesis brand, that, that's their focus, right, is on their in-house brand that, that they developed. So that, that gives them a little more flexibility to, to say, hey, we're, we're selling our stuff for the beginner and we've got our intermediate and we've got our advanced corner. Whereas modern sort of U.S. retail, it's like, are you a, it's not are you a beginner or an advanced or, or an intermediate golfer? It's are you a tailor-made guy? Well, go to the tailor-made corner. If you're mm. a Callaway guy, go to the Callaway corner. If you're a Titleist guy, go to the Titleist corner. And if you're a guy who's who's really just kind of new to the game and a real a true beginner, like you probably haven't figured that piece out yet, right? Yeah, you're just a you're just a golfer. And right, or yeah, or even I mean to an extent, right? A guy who wants to become a golfer. <laughs> there you go. And, and you don't know where to go because you're like, well, you know, which, which logo is cool versus well, which yeah. product is designed to meet yeah, my needs. Think about how confusing it is if you want to go. Like we've obviously been golfers, so we don't think about this. But let's say you. Somebody convinces you to become a golfer and you go, man, like I want to become a golfer. And you walk into a regular retail store, overwhelming, yeah. you know, paralysis. Well, it is. And then analysis. you're looking at the price tag and like, I might be giving this up in six, six months. I'm not going to spend, you know, two grand on a full set. Right. Right off the bat. I can go to a beginner. I'm not sure what indices There's have. a, there's a wall thrown up right away. Massive. Versus yeah. the decathlon model, which is like, Hey, you want to start out? Here's an affordable option for you to at least get started. And it's in a way that helps you enjoy the game quicker. Meaning, yeah. I think the keys to growing golf are fairly simple. And it hap- there's three things, I think, that help grow the game. And the faster these three things happen, the more likely that you're going to have a, a, a golfer for life. And that is hitting the sweet spot. No different than when you hit a home run and you feel that feeling. Mm-hmm. If you can hit the sweet spot, get a par, and get a birdie, the quicker those three things happen, the more likely someone, in my opinion, is going to become a golfer, Absolutely. right? So I think Innesis does a great job at that because if you're selling people products that can help them do those things quicker, I mean, hey, play a shorter hole. Well, do yeah, it with 43-inch drivers. A golf park around that, though, they have a six-hole pitch and putt course where you can go on, and it's, it's literally like a par three course, but the longest hole might be 80 yards or 100 yards. Yeah, and if you're a new golfer and you're playing a par three that's 210, right, versus 90 yards, you're a new golfer, you don't care. And and they've created a culture where, and I don't know if this is just because it's Europe or because it's France or because it's a decathlon and Innesis, but they've created a culture where you feel welcomed at the golf course. I feel like a lot of people, when they're beginner golfers, you see this a lot with the gym. People that don't know how to work out, like they won't go to the gym unless they have somebody to show them work out because they're embarrassed to be around other people who know how to work hey man, out. That's a fact. Like take Buff, you know, yeah. our friend. Um, his son was serious. <laughs> Jimmy. Hey, don't. Have I got a story for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, Buff's son was serious about taking up golf, you know, and he would go to go, all right, I want to take my son out. And the first thing they would say is like they didn't want him to play on the right. course. And he's like, dude, I'm a member of this course and I want to teach my son how to play. There's not a great option for that, right? right. Par three, shorter holes, they're a great option to have kid be able to just go over there, have some fun, get a solid shot, get a par, get a even if it's a fake birdie, you know? Yeah. They feel like then they can actually play this game. And once they feel like they can actually play it, they're more likely well, to be. Well, it is a little bit off. different. I mean, in England, there is obviously those clubs that are the same over here, the country club kind of vibe and they have a thing called a junior section where you don't have to be a member. You just come up there and that gets a, get a group lesson, which is inviting. Um, but it still has a stigma of atta- attached to it where if you're, if, if you're like a, a kid and you're probably like a 20 handicap trying to get into the game, 
there's still out guys out there be like, oh, this is going to be a slow round. Yeah. They don't know anything. Um, they're just going to annoy my round before they even tee off. So there's right. still that. And then if it's like, if someone says something, and I've had this um, done to me when I was a junior, if someone says, you you need to speed up or you need to do better at this or whatever it was, I can't quite remember, it knocks my confidence. I was like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to see that guy again. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it's the same. You feel self-conscious. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, then, and that's not how to grow the game to make the first no. experience come to a course and go, man, I'm not, I do not feel wanted here. But know? I do think that the, that breed is, you know, dying off. It's more like I experienced this recently with going back to my home club. We got stuck behind some juniors and they were taking forever. But I was thinking like, man, that was me 10, 15 years ago hitting you know, 10 shots on a par four, not knowing that like I was that bad. Yeah. But for me to be able to say, okay, that was me one day. I understand. And like, we were patient, but I've been in situations where I've been that kid and been, Oh God, guys have driven up on me. Get the hell off the golf Learning course. Learning golf for me doing? was the worst experience. <laughs> it was I mean, the worst experience, man. My dad wanted me to play so bad, but he felt that pressure urge from behind, you know, yeah. the group behind. So it was just a, you know, hit a shot, run, race, get to the next shot. And yeah. he's like, dude, is this golf? Like, this is not fun. You know, mm-hmm. Um, which is why I don't play golf anymore. So there you go. Uh, anyhow, I am <laughs> playing next. So you, so you are not playing next Friday. I am playing next Friday. Wait, really? It's it's a verbal contract that's binding. Yeah, we in have it on camera now. <laughs> yes, I am playing next Friday. Let's go. We're gonna Let's win. Get We're it. gonna get some cocktails. All right. So just to wrap it up, Ennis's so far. Go check him out. You know, obviously we wrote an article about Chris them did, yesterday. That was a great write up from Chris. Really good write up really yesterday. That. Uh, that really kind of describes it perfectly you know of what the company is and their purpose but that being said so far just in our own testing they've done well with the rangefinder the shoe and the golf ball um at a very affordable price and speaking of golf balls we're going to get to our next uh section on new releases and that is titleist doing what titleist does and that's called the exp01 and uh let me ask you guys questions um have you ever gotten one of those blank white boxes in the mail from titleist we can't stop getting them. Did you get them before you started working for MySkogs? Oh, uh, no. Not no? that way. Did you? No. no, when I was always jealous when I would see it on Instagram. People would be popping up with white box. I'm like, where's my white box? I know. Right? So, like, the white box, like, Titleist kind of invented that, yeah. right? That's cool. for Team Titleist, guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta unless join you're the Team, team Titleist, you don't, you well, don't how, get the white box. How did I get on Team Titleist? Do you think Do you I, think this will be a, you're my a, new, a new thing? This was prior. Do you think so? They got white boxes for golf balls. Do you think it would be... Clubs coming in white boxes. I think and his hats. Do you think Tony's going to come in a white box? Tony, White box hat. Yeah. White box hat. It'd be good. Hope so. The thing about balls that makes it easy is like you just don't put a logo on it so you don't know what's on the inside. With a club, you can't just like not put a logo on a club because it's right in front of you. Yeah, you, you know? can. What Prototype. You, you just just slap slap it on there. It's cast iron. Well, Shaft. the thing um, is... Clubs aren't made out of cast well, iron. Well, you know really. what I mean. Iron. <laughs> Cool that is a skillet. Not a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, no, definitely. I, I think I think if a, a golf company was going to make a driver out of cast iron, <laughs> should definitely white box it. Uh, <laughs> it would be a little heavy to ship, though. No, uh, try playing that thing. Oh boy, my anyway, game so, so most of us now by this point have gotten a white box from Tyus or been jealous or seen him, right? Yeah, and yeah. this is kind of taking the white box thing to the next level so tony what is this? is this marketing or what what is this 
a little, a little bit, some marketing for sure. Yeah. And, and some experimental stuff too. So yeah, it's being billed as, as straight from the R and D lab, right? A new ball called EXP 01, the EXP standing, I, I suppose for experimental. So it's, it's the first in what could prove to be a long series of experimental balls that Titleist is willing to put in consumer hands for the low, low price of thirty nine ninety nine a dozen. Uh, that's, you know, that's map. You can actually apparently buy them for more and then pay shipping on top of it. So, you know, not a groundbreaking deal. But the idea is you get to sample new technology before it's available on the mass market. So, so let me, let this me is, ask again, first one. If sure. If you're Callaway or Strixon or Bridgestone, obviously they know you're going to be buying those balls and cutting them up and doing a composition test on them or whatever, right? They're most time the the majority of the time companies want to keep things like that uh, new tech really close to the vest and not let others see what they're working on right why are they willing to do that with these in your opinion i w- i would guess two things one it's probably you know not as far along as a typical white box ball but they they have a pretty good idea of what it is right so they're you know it's not halfway done or something like that for the most part and the other piece is i'd be willing to bet it's it's got plenty of patents around it anyway uh, so, and in, in this case, it's just, uh, it seems like it's a, 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 the big selling point, right? Is a, what they call MTR urethane or something. So something like that. So a, a new urethane formulation for the cover. How'd you get your hands on them? I was going to say, are we going to get some? Do they just randomly send them to random golf? What's that guy addresses? you got fit from at Titleist that has to give them to you? No. So, I mean, I, I got it. Like I get Glenn? Most anything else where... Yeah, no, it wasn't Glenn. <laughs> I had a phone call and they said, hey, here's what we're working on. Um, here's all the information for for a story if you want to write one. And, you know, we're going to send them to you primarily. Like, I get that stuff primarily for photos and to mess around a little bit with. So, right. you know, taking them out to the course, out onto the, my backyard, I think, probably more telling than anything else. So, so you've hit yeah, them, Tony. Tell us what you know so far or what you think so far about the ball. So if I had to posit a guess as to what we're dealing with, I think this is probably a next generation of technology that will find its way into something like an AVX. It's certainly so we've we've seen the cut opens. Matt can probably put them up and put them on the screen for us at some point. But um, it is three piece construction in line with AVX or Pro V1X or Pro V1 rather. Super soft feel, especially on wedges, Um, you know, hitting it side by side with Pro V1 and Pro V1X noticeably softer does softer does tend to to want to get up in the air a little bit more even off like a a short wedge shot so that that's kind of my biggest observations so far Interesting. how do they do with smiley faces yeah i i i, I have not cut any open on accident <laughs> so accidentally on purpose yeah, yeah no i don't, no, I'm, uh, not, I'm betting on Tylus not releasing a ball that has that problem uh, I, yeah. I could probably go with that statement. Bank on That's that. a safe yeah. bet. That is the kind of shit Titleist has tight and locked down and together. So, yeah, you won't see that. All right. So, uh, other than that, wrapping up, uh, no putts given today before we get Dean Snell on here, and that is wedge testing finishes up. Yeah. Right? We have one last session to go. One last session. To I go. have been busy. <laughs> so one last session to go, and we will be putting together the 2019 yeah. most I'm already wedge test. Data, so it's but it's, it's coming it, together faster than I thought it would. There's some scary things that I've just been observing once doing the test. Oh god, yeah. With watching and performing the test myself, it is alarming. 
Okay, so there you go. You heard it right here first. Uh, there's some alarming issues with wedges. Wet versus dry, you mean? Just or, the wet portion in general from yeah. what I've seen. From wet to wet, from iron to, uh, to wedge to wedge. It's yeah. kind of a scary realization <clears throat> that I spin my driver more than some of these wedges. All I can when say they get is wet, you mean. hydrophobicity yeah. is real. Yeah. Like that's a real thing. So you're definitely going to want to check out uh, probably two weeks before that comes out, I think. Uh, I doubt we'll have it ready to publish next week. So probably the Monday after next. So two weeks yeah. from, uh, you know, two Mondays from now, uh, 2019 Most Wanted Wedge. You're definitely going to want to check this one out because it will be the first time that I think anyone's done a full wet versus dry with all the wedges head to head. So looking forward to seeing what that result uh, looks like. But for all those fans out there, we got a great one coming out for you on Tuesday. What we got? Which is the ball retriever. So oh. you're welcome. <laughs> hey, <laughs> are handles a part of the ball retriever yes, they protocol? Are. Yes, they are. I knew they would be. Handle yeah, Tony, Tony loves that portion. Jesus so, Christ. Can you give us any kind of teaser around a ball retriever? Because I know they are dying in anticipation to know more information about the ball oh yeah retriever. well let's face it i think they have a funnel system tony you'll like this one so if when the water gets trapped inside the uh, tube that extends comes out the bottom of it oh, so there you go you there's can... there's your solution for your umbrella shit for the umbrella bingo it's all coming together so does coming the company together. that makes the ball retriever also make umbrellas they should yes they do oh really boom i think so yeah license that jenks I wouldn't be surprised. I think they do, but don't quote me on that. Okay. But yeah, but it does get on you because I didn't realize it came out the bottom until it actually spilled on me. So <laughs> we need, you need a funnel system that comes all the way out towards you. It goes around your bag. So do we have a definitive winner? Yeah, it's... it's Not even close. Nah. Really? There's, it's the same family. I'm just going to put that one out there. A blowout in the ball retriever category <laughs> 2019. There's not many to test. Of the year. That is... Because the be. article, that and the speakers. I mean, Tony loves this shit. <laughs> All right, up next is Dean Snell, the pioneer of direct-to-consumer golf ball market, and he's going to cut straight through the bullshit of the golf ball industry next on No Putts Given. Let's see if we can get him on the line. I can see Magnus. you guys are on like a There screen. you go. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Hey, yeah, it's, hey, your guys' weather looks about the same. Yeah, yeah, we're at Pebble Beach right now. <laughs> Do you work for Snell? <laughs> it's like 40 to 40 degrees <laughs> yeah it was 50 that's why i have my hockey sweatshirt on <laughs> that's a pretty cool sweatshirt yeah, the nhl, NHL started last night so i tell it. you what but exactly. the Steam simulator and, and the quad in the background foresight better but they're getting for nothing here <laughs> throw us a free course <laughs> all right so dean just give me the top five golf balls that you either invented or co-invented so, you know, so everybody out there kind of remembers that doesn't know who Dean Snell is. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, it, they, they've evolved over time. I think with the, pro, the professional was the first, the first major one that really brought cast urethane into, into golf. So um, that cast urethane technology is, is, is as good as it gets, and it's still, it's still been there. That was 1995. That really was one of the biggest steps of taking spin rates that have been pretty high you know, down into into manageable spin rates, which helped increase distance. And it kind of kicked off the original launch of this whole USGA, we got to shorten the golf ball, stuff that's been going on for 25, 30 years. So that was kind of one of the urethane one was a big one. And then the multi-layer 
um, solid golf balls. The Pro V1 uh, was was also a big one. Now I wasn't there when Titleist launched the Pro V1, but I was there when we did the development uh, of the Pro V1. Um, so th th there were reasons why they took a long time. They can tell you about those if they want. That was another one. And then I think the Penta golf ball was was probably you know the first five layer golf ball that came out that um, really was a, was a accumulation of accumulation of a, a lot of work with the tour players. Um, working through the whole set. You know, we used to, when I started, we used to just test eight iron spin rate and driver spin rate. That's all it was. And then we kind of got into the wedge and eight iron and driver. And when we went into Penta, it was really the whole set, you know. So the Penta was, was one of the, you know, in my opinion, was one of the, the best inventions that really took from a tour level, which these guys are that good, you know, T to green. I think those were, uh, those were the, the, you know, the three big changes that's happened. Now, the other golf balls that have followed with it have, you know, have been minor tweaks. But the top three, I think, would be Professional, Pro V1, and Penta. Those would be the main, the main ones that really had a defining change to performance that could be seen by players. Two things that kind of jumped out at me on that. And one is the fact that golf ball companies, it's pretty shocking that they only tested with an 8-iron, right? And and a driver and uh to think that there's so much more to be learned from every other club in the bag and the five layer ball from taylor made that that you learn so much from but also the fact that you know this is kind of a golf geek thing but we take cast urethane for granted i think a little bit nowadays but how long did that actually take just the cath the the learning process to create that how long of a process was that when you were at titles well it was, it was brutal to be honest with you um the cast urethane chemistry part of it had actually started, uh, the development of just the urethane had started before I started at Titleist. That was in 1990. Now, trying to make that into a golf ball is when I came in. So the engineering side to it, I mean, I can remember, I can remember when we started, we had one little cavity and we injected one squirt of urethane and I took a, a Q-tip and I would sit there with a Q-tip while this thing went from a, a liquid to a solid in about 45 seconds. And when I got really close to a solid, I took the wound center, which was a professional center, and I put it in by hand till the stuff came up and overflowed half of the half of the cavity. Then I poured liquid in the other side, took the Q-tip, flipped them over, took a C-clamp, and I ran to a, a freezer and I put it in the freezer <laughs> and waited 20 minutes. I mean, one ball, and then took it out, and there was holes around the seam, and it was a mess. But it, it had a cover on it that made a golf ball. So How that, centered was? How centered was that core, though? Well, I didn't have a calibrated hand, hand for the first, but it was the, the basis of it was trying to. So eventually, what we do is we put mechanical stops so that lowered down in and it became 12 stations at a time. But there was another guy, John Clavier, and myself that were the two engineers that were doing it. And when we took this into production, we actually, the, the goal was only to make 2,000, 2000 golf balls in a shift with 10% rejects. We had to teach the people in the manufacturer's side, how to do urethane. So extremely difficult process. But when you can fine-tune it and get the cover, which gives you a lot of strength. Remember, cast urethane is A and B together, exothermal reaction, cross-links, so it's irreversible. So you can't remelt it. You can't reuse it like the thermoplastic urethane. Um, it cross-links and creates very tough cover. So you can go a little thinner, and the durability got a lot better. You might, you might want to tell that to Costco on that Kirkland ball, but... Um, you were speaking a, a lot about engineering and one of the things that I think people say, even when I met you the first time, you know, you got an accent about as thick as clam chowder as uh, John Barber would say. And, um, yeah. the perception is, 
you know, hockey player, sweatshirt, hoodie, you know, the last thing most people are going to think is this dude is a math genius, right? That's not like the first perception you get. So you were an engineer, went to college for engineering, plastics engineering, from what I remember. So obviously you were into math. When did you know that math was like a big part of your life? How old were you? And what was the first kind of thing that made you know math was something you were talented at? Well, I, I, I was I was lucky in school. You know, the, the, the math side to it came pretty easy to me. In engineering, it's it's calculus, one, two, three, differential <laughs> equations, class transforms. There's a lot of things that go into it. And the plastics engineering that I went into uh, is also a lot of chemistry. So it's seven out of eight semesters in college that were chemistry. Physical chem, biochem, organic chem, inorganic chem. So all of that stuff together with the math side to it and the chemistry side to it, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. You know, when I finished playing hockey, I, I worked for BF Goodrich Aerospace, designing parts for F-16 fighter planes. It, it was some kind of composites. There was some chemistry and some manufacturing into it. And then I answered an ad for Titleist for a quality engineer that was in my hometown. They sent my resume over to R&D, and then the next week I was hired. And, and I literally started on the cast urethane project because they didn't have any any process to make the golf ball. So... All right, so a lot yeah. of people don't a lot of people don't know this about you, but you were a hockey player in college, right? Also played at a minor professional level um, for the Hershey Bears. Uh, just have a quiz question for you: Do you know what the mascot's name was? No, was it Hershey Kiss? No, it was it was, it was Coco because it was owned by the people that own the uh, Hershey yeah. facility. And another quiz question for you, which I just learned because my kids went to the Hershey plant. What percentage of chocolate is in a Hershey's bar? What do you think, Tony? Ten. <laughs> Not we, much. Zero. Zero chocolate. <laughs> real chocolate is in a Hershey's bar. Is that some shit or what, man? Uh, yeah. Well, I know. <laughs> there you go. The best thing I remember about remember I was kind of like a, like a hockey player. Kind of, I, I didn't play golf. I hated golf. And and only thing I remember is all the streetlights were like Hershey Kisses and the whole place smelled like <laughs> Well, that gets me to this whole thing. Like, so you, you're an engineer, you go to school for that plastics engineering, chemistry, all these things, and you get a job, you know, working on F-16s and Blackhawks. And then you see this ad for Titleist that, you know, the only experience you had in golf from what I remember is being in a fight on a fairway with your dad. So like, <laughs> uh, what in the hell made you go, what did that, why did that Titleist ad pop off the page to you and go, man, this is a job I think I can do? Well, I'll be honest with you. I lived in a cushion it. It was a cushioning company. The Titleist factory was about maybe a par five from my house. Um, and I was working for BF Goodrich Aerospace and Defense, which was up in Marlboro, Mass., which was an hour and 15 minutes from my house. So, you know, I, I was back and forth traveling every day and spending, you know, three hours a day in a car, um, in a car or whatever, if you guys want to. <laughs> car. Yeah. In a big car. And, um, and then, so this was a hometown, it was an engineering job, it was a hometown thing. I didn't really care about the R&D side to it, I just saw they had an open position that was, you know, a par five from my house, so I answered it. And because of the work that I had done, um, you know, at BF Goodrich, in the R&D side to it for Goodrich, they sent it over to R&D, and, you know, I was fortunate, you know, to, Titleist was, was, was very, very good to me, the outstanding company, and, and, um, you know, when I left Titleist, they actually had a little going away party, wish me good luck and things like that. So, you know, the, the, the company is, was, was fun to work with and, and, you know, very, very dedicated to the R&D side to, to what goes on. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like, what you, how long did you, uh, what year was that when you started working at Titleist, Dean? That was in 1990. 
And I left, I left to go to TaylorMade at the beginning of 97. So 30 years now, retrospectively looking back, right? You go, man, how the hell did I get here, right? You know, I started at Titleist at that job ad, and now your life forked because of that ad in this direction, and now you have your own Wikipedia page, um, which is pretty crazy because I don't think Tony has his own Wikipedia page. God, I hope not. <laughs> My golf spy is actually listed on your Wikipedia page, which is pretty interesting. But um, yeah, I didn't I mean, even know. <laughs> you didn't know you had a Wikipedia page? Oh, you guys have told me this the last time I talked to you. You said something about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a pretty crazy ride, don't you think? It is, but it's been fun. You know, Titleist and TaylorMade, and, and, and again, I spent 18 years at TaylorMade. So um, two different kind of companies in, in the big corporate world with, with respect to golf. Um, two ways that they operate, two different types of management styles, um, which, which were pretty cool to see. You know, you could really see the difference in them when you're in one building and in another building to really find out the differences in the company side but but uh but i was very fortunate you know very and worked worked with all the top tour players in the world for for all, the whole time you know we started on the professional that i did that was with phil mickelson davis love and peter costas and then time in right when he was a pro so i spent two weeks with tiger and his dad um just just hitting shots and letting him understand what was going to be the difference between tour Bolada and urethane at the time the, the professional um, and then that transition to, with Mickelson on the Pro V1, he was the guy that I went to see with the first prototypes uh, with the Pro V1. So it, it, it's, and then with TaylorMade, you know, their tour staff is outstanding. And then those guys are still uh, real good friends of mine. I, I speak to them, you know, frequently, see them when they do come to Boston. So, um, you know, spent times at their homes, played in tournaments with them. And, you know, they, they're really good. So if you ever need somebody to, to really fine tune different things, you know, we work with amateur golfers where, you know, hitting the ball in the air could be a success sometimes. With these guys having a cover hardness be three short D points softer to make a spin check on a chip shot, they can tell the difference. So it's, it's much different to work with, but, but they're that good. Yeah, so that gets me to a, a different question, talking about that consistency thing, right? And the pro being able to know those type of very specific, small type of differences from ball to ball. And, you know, obviously Tony has started something with this whole find it, cut it thing. And, you know, the Callaway uh, was one of the worst we saw in regards to quality control. So, I mean, how, how does that how does that happen with a company like Callaway, in your opinion, where a pro knows those differences, right? Can feel and see and, you know, they, they know that what's going on. So how does that problem come to life with a big company like that if the pros are obviously can, you know, kind of feel such minor differences and we saw such drastic differences from ball to ball. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a tough thing. I'll, I'll tell you the, the millions and millions and millions of golf balls that are made every day in a, in a process that's, that's not, you've got things inside that are melting and have moving parts. Um, it's, it's not easy to do all the time. You know, you, there's pins and core pins that hold cores have gone uh, low compression, mid compression, high compression, so try to make a two-piece golf ball with a real soft core and the core will explode during the process and blow out the cover. So getting down into ranges that start to push limits create manufacturing problems. So when you really go soft, soft, softer, it, it makes it tough to do. That, that core really wants to expand during the process and, and it can have things move a little bit or shift a little bit. The tour side to it, when you asked about consistency, 
most of the time in my experience with with uh, the tour guys is their golf balls actually go through a little different inspection criteria they're a little bit tighter um you know to and they have to be the the balls are pulled from for the usga the balls are pulled from the tour where they do delisting stuff that comes from the tour they don't go out to walmart and kmart and buy golf balls and then test them and say hey the golf ball is heavy or it's too fast or it's illegal it's delisted they take them from the tour and it's random so they'll show up and say hey today we, we need a dozen and then our tour reps would go in and fill the guy's locker with another dozen because they would take them and they go do their testing so their inspection criteria typically were a little bit tighter um yeah i think most of the major companies probably do x-ray stuff on them to try to see you know some of that some of that variables and it probably wouldn't have those go most of the cois and velocities that go out to the tour have to be checked before they go because that's where they're going to be delisted well let's back up a little bit you know about direct to consumer so you go from Tylus right to TaylorMade, and what allowed you really to to know that now is a time that i can start my own ball company what was happening at that time Prior to the day, because you have to remember when when those balls were popping up like Monster and Three Ball or whatever they were that Titleist they sued ten companies. More right? than that, I think Snell was not a part of that. Well, whatever ten was, you know what we wrote about, right? But when we we had so many readers re, uh, reaching out to us, going, "Will you guys test these direct consumer balls?" And to be completely honest, we didn't know who the hell Dean Snell was at the time. Snell was just another ball, but very quickly we realized, wow, out of all these balls. This ball is really good, right? So all these balls, it happened all at the same time. So there was some signal, something happened in the ball industry that signaled to people like yourself or some of these other people that, hey, man, we can get in the golf ball game. So what was that that made you know you could do it? Well, for me, it was the timing side to it that had to be right. It was something I had thought about previously, but my, my kids were still in college, and I wanted to make sure that, that they were done paid for school was all set and they were finished before you know you take a chance to go do something um from a tailor-made side to it the the, the ball club side to it for tailor-made was is heavily club not so much golf ball at the time and titleist is heavily golf ball not so much um, golf club at the time and there's still big big percentage weights that that favor that that same scenario so the opportunity to try to you know i was in california my family's from massachusetts um, the timing side to it, when my kids are out of school, you know, I could go back, go back home and be back home with with family. Um, I traveled so much, you know, I spent I spent a million miles in, on Delta, you know, every year. It, it, it was just it's a lot. Travel all over the world, working with players, different countries, building factories, um, and it was just you know, I just said, okay, I kind of just want to go home, you know, and just kind of take it easy and let me see if this can work. Where where that this timing where the golf industry really it, it was taking a dive. You know, TaylorMade was a $1.2 billion company heading down to $800 million. Um, golf courses were closing. Uh, memberships canceled. Uh, golf clubs were getting introduced every four months, maybe three months, and people weren't buying, you know, and waiting for the discounts and stuff like that. So I think the timing side to it fit where to say, if you can give something back to consumers. I've been blessed and fortunate to be with two top companies, design golf balls for the best players in the world, been to the parties when they won majors it's i've been fortunate so if i can give something back to the consumer to say you know i got a lot of history and a lot of understanding of what's 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 a good core what's a good mantle what's a good cover how i can put them together um and make it work so if we could give this type of performance to the average golfer that actually buys the golf balls the tour guys don't pay for them 
we could give that, maybe help drive the game, maybe somebody would go to the course and play two rounds instead of one, make it affordable. But what, but what was happening at the foundries that allowed companies like Monster and Three Ball to just slap a logo on these and allow you to create a ball that could perform as well or better than some of the leading balls out there? I'm, I'm pretty sure that Monster and uh, Three, three uh, was it Lightning three Ball? Three up. Three up. Yep, three up. I'm three pretty up. sure their R&D experience was, was very limited. There's, there's factories over, overseas that you can go to and, and you know, they, they'll, make, they'll make something for you. A lot of them will make the same ball for a lot of people and put a different, different stamp on them. Um, that's, a, that's a given. But for us to be different, I was trying to use the experience that I had for 25 plus years at the time to design it. So if you, if you want to go to a factory in Taiwan or China and say, give me a core, they're going to give you a core that's going to be the cheapest rubber material you can buy. I'm going to go and I'm going to use a rubber material that's cross-linked with a, with a, with a special agent that drives the speed up with, when the compression gets softer. All right. So we, so we know rebranding of golf balls happens pretty often, right? You would know the prevalence of that more than we would, but you know, let's get to the point, you know, does, do any of your balls exist under any other brands or logos like some of the other balls they, they out there? Not. You know, I mean, if, <laughs> if, if they do, if you find it, cut it, tell me because, uh, because I'd be bullshit at that, but it's because uh, I spent time. We spent time developing. We we do R and D work. We send formulations to them. They send prototypes to us. We send the prototypes out to be independent tested. Um, we we put a lot of effort into it based on feedback that we get from consumers. All right, which is what we thought about it. You know, I didn't think your ball. There was another one, and Tony, hopefully for you know your sake, doesn't find that to be not true. Uh, but we know. But we know that is happening, right? So there are a lot of bullshit stories in the golf ball world. So, like, which one pisses you off the most that you see? From the direct-to-consumer? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would say there's more bullshit stories there. Um, well, I don't, I don't know if there's a I, – I don't know what claims these, some of these companies make with respect. I mean, everybody on the box writes the same thing, spins, spins less, goes further, you know, blah, blah, blah. But uh, – but, I mean, for, for me, the, the story that really drives me crazy is the whole swing speed story and trying to push people into the low compression golf balls. I think it's the worst thing in the world that, that people can do. And everybody's just trying to push soft feel, soft feel, and they're pushing out of performance. So you're taking people and you're throwing them into a level of performance that's not there. It's not going to be 20 yards longer and it's not going to spin when you get to the green. So it's not going to be any good. You know, that's... Yeah, going back and looking at, you know your history, you were saying soft was slow or shit <laughs> long before we made a shirt that said it or made golf balls that said it. But, um, you know, it is pretty frustrating to see how golf balls are marketed to consumers. And the reality is it's almost the exact opposite, you know, which is, you know, it's, it's pretty shameful to see, you know, because it is taking advantage of what the consumer thinks they need and giving them something that they don't really need, you know? Yeah. I agree. I mean, I, the the swing speed side to it is a is a is a big thing. The compression side to it used to be my pet peeve, which make me want to pull the shirt over the head and throw up. <laughs> it's it's not that it, the swing speed story is that way now. Anybody that wants to get better in golf is going to get better when they get from 100 yards and in. It's not going to be hitting your 220 yard drive, 221 yards. You know, then you got to finish. The hole. You got to finish the hole, and you're finishing the hole with a golf ball that has no spin whatsoever, no performance. So you, you, you've gained, you know, a few inches off the tee on a perfect drive, and that doesn't happen often. 
but you've given up everything the closer you get to the green. Let's talk about cost versus versus quality to a degree, right? So we've talked about a lot of these guys in, in the direct consumer space, and if you if you want to throw Costco in there, which I guess is probably reasonable at this point, the range of a, a of a direct to consumer ball right now is is anywhere from fifteen dollars with Costco upwards of whatever Clear gets, right? Which is I think what eighty to a hundred a dozen. Uh, given exactly right, given. Given what goes into to producing a urethane cover and maintaining the quality of a product, I mean, you know how much it costs to make a golf ball. So in your mind, what, what's the cheapest, the lowest price point that a consumer should expect to pay for a urethane cover, three or four piece ball? Oh, lost my lost my bulbic. Um, a three or four piece urethane ball and still get a quality product. Like how low is too low? Well, twenty seven ninety nine for a five. <laughs> probably perfect for free shipping. <laughs> that would be that would be uh, so. The, there is a big difference in cost between uh, a, a cast urethane and a thermoplastic urethane. There's there's no question. The cover material is probably about four or five times the the cost alone just to cover. The process side to it is, is very expensive. It's a it's a continuous loop that goes around. It takes twenty minutes to make one ball. If you make a mistake, it's scrap. Callaway had this issue when they started their factory, their golf ball factory in 96 or 97, whenever they did it. And they ran into millions of dollars per quarter in scrap. The cast urethane process is tough. Crosslink, make a mistake, you don't get anything back. It's all scrap. Injection molding. Unless you're Costco. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, so the the Costco side to it, you know, I know that some of the, some of the I, I read some of the things that you guys put up and read some of the comments people make. And I know Titleist and TaylorMade got hammered for trying to be bullies. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. That, that's not bullying what they're doing. I would use a scenario. You guys have you guys have spent how many years now doing what you're doing? Ten, ten years? So you build up, you know, a million followers and, you know, tons and tons of emails. And if somebody would, if somebody would come in tomorrow and take all that stuff and go and go do it, You'd be mad. So when the when the company spent, you know, did a lot of work on a four piece cast urethane golf ball, got introduced with TaylorMade, called the TP Red LDP. Now we had multiple versions of it because the tour players don't always play the same ball. Um, so we made multiple versions of it, and it was made in a factory that was made over in in uh, Korea. So and it, and I have patents on. It. If someone comes and says, "Oh, just change that thickness by," you know. By ten thousandths of an inch, and it's not the same ball. It may not be the same ball, but it still falls under the research work that we spent five years developing and a lot of money getting the patent on it and, and investing in it. So if someone just comes in and grabs a ball and goes off and goes and sells it, and they sell it at a ridiculously low price, those companies should be upset. You know, and it's not it's not how you would want that to happen to your business if that was the case. So you know, I, I think Titleist and TaylorMade had a had a reason to, to not like that approach. Um, you know, and I know the whole story behind it. We've never really gotten into it, but but it, it was going to go away, you know, and in, in, in the marketing approach that they went of releasing just a small amount every month out of this volume, which to send this every month because they're not going to have any more. That lasted for a couple of years and it worked. It created a buzz, but they sold out in no time. So when they sell out in no time like that, it's not a surprise that they don't have that many. And in the golf ball world, I can tell you to the dozen how many they got made, and I and, I, and they released them every month because there's a capacity issue. 
the factory that's being, I was part of the design group that built it. So I know how many dozens can be made in that factory in the mine. And everybody kind of thinks like, oh, you're putting them down. I'm not putting them down. I'm not being petty about the Costco thing. I just believe that if you back up, if you back up and you go through the work that you did and you spent a lot of time doing it and then someone comes in and just says, hey, I'll give you this, take it, you know, it, you're going to get, you're going to get slapped and you're not, not going to be able to do it anymore. So it's, I mean, it's, it's over and it's moved to another factory now and it's a different process and a different material. Well, well, let me ask you this. It's kind of uh, we kind of thought about this uh, yesterday. I thought it was almost almost a little funny. You mentioned the 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 red LDP. Um, you know, certainly everything we've heard points to the origins of the original Kirkland coming from a ball that was a tailor made ball. So, did you inadvertently help develop the Costco ball? No, I didn't. I, well, I guess I did. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It, it, when I work at TaylorMade, um, you know, but that's, you know, that that's that's where it falls under, the, you know, it's public knowledge. You can go on the patents that we have and look under TaylorMade and the fourth ball and, you know, the inventor and my name's there and then take a look at the four layers and the materials that are used and, and take a look and you can kind of get a feel for what it is. But, but you know, I, I would probably go the opposite way and say, oh, which Costco engineer developed that ball? Oh, do they have one? Yeah, yeah. Well, and well, that, that's an interesting point too, right? Well, because you you mentioned right, Costco owns no intellectual property in the golf ball space, and and a lot of your competitors in this direct to consumer space, I would argue, most if not all of them, own no intellectual property in the golf ball space. So, you know, what is your response when you you hear something like, you know, we designed this ball or we engineered this ball, and you know, whether it's California or Germany or all these all these places where where golf balls are supposedly being designed and engineers from guys who have no background in ball technology and hold no intellectual property whatsoever. I mean, what what's the response to that? What should the consumer think when you hear something like that? Yeah, I would probably, I'd like to sit in a room with them and say, what's what, what's the rubber system to use or what's the cross-link percentage and do you have neodymium or beryllium or nickel or cobalt and what's the percent acid you have in the ionomer mantle you got? Like ask questions like that because pretty sure they probably wouldn't know the answer but what happens with that tony is is over there in the factories and there's some factories that are a little more shady than others but over there in the factory side to it they've made things for people and then they just make things for people you know so somebody could be giving them some kind of recipe to make a prototype in, in the past or sell a golf ball in the past think think about the nike situation nike was it phantom in, in China, that's where Nike made their golf balls. That's their tool, and that's their 338 dipple pattern. That's their thermoplastic urethane cover. That's they, They're not in golf balls anymore. So so this factory knows how to make those kind of golf balls. They can now make them and go. Now, Nike can do what they want. I don't know, I don't know how many patents Nike filed for those kind of constructions, but a lot of times the factory might have the cover formulation, and remember, Bridgestone and Srixon have thermoplastic urethane covers as as well as Nike did. And those three companies have three different thermoplastic urethane covers, three different formulations. And Bridgestone and Srixon are outstanding. They're very good companies. They're very good quality and they're very um, high performance. They spent a lot of time developing these TPU covers, you know, and I don't, I'm not sure Nike, when they were in the ball business, did the same to the same level. And that's kind of what you get. What's the uh, what's the trickle down in 
in what we're seeing right now. So obviously we start with, with Costco having an impact and, and essentially being forced out of the factory they, they were in, right? So they got forced out of Nassau in Korea and now are with what, what used to be Phantom in China, right? SM Parker now. Is that Does that have a trickle-down effect where, where other direct consumer manufacturers are being pushed out of that factory into other places and that is that ultimately going to impact both the number and quality of, of the offerings on the market i think it could i mean I, i'm not sure the the total capacity um from phantom or sm parker or the new name of it the total capacity of their of their things are, are probably pretty good you know you can make a lot of thermoplastic urethane it's just another injection molding machine you make eight at a time in about 40 seconds you know a cycle you, you can really pump out high volumes um, paint machines aren't that hard to get so it's a little bit different than the cast urethane but i think if the volumes get really big it could push other people out i'm not i'm not really sure i know i know there's other direct-to-consumer companies have golf balls made in that factory today so we'll, we'll see if they're if they're gone and you uh you used that factory at one point right for uh mtb red what we did yeah, we had the MTB Red that we, we went there to, to use it. And in the, in the feedback side to it that we get, um, you know, obviously there's a cost side to it. The cost was cheaper. But our, our problem that we had was was we got feedback on our MTB, our original one, and then black. And people were looking for something a little firmer and a little more spin. So that design that we had helped it. But we had problems with uh, some of the little pin marks on the quality side to it. You could see the injection molded. Um, with the, when you make a, an injection molded cover, there's four or five pins on each end that, that hold the mantle in place. You inject first stage injection, then you make pins. And second stage injection fills those pins. Well, if the vents are clogged or there's something wrong with it, that can cause quality defects, which you could feel the pin marks on the ball. We had a lot of people say that to us, and then we had some durability issues with, with the covers more than we had with the thermoset urethane. So, so we, we decided to do some more prototyping and go back to the thermal set urethane because the, the, with the MTBX that we designed, which in the testing side to it really, really separated itself out as a better product. Is that, is that one of your biggest challenges when you do have quality issues like that coming from a factory, sort of catching them as quickly as possible so that they don't leak out to your customers like, like some of them did with the MTB Red? Uh, yeah, it is. So, so the factory that we use now has is a different quality system than the factory we had with MPB Red. We have people that work there that are in there and release, so the golf balls don't get sent to us. You know, for us to inspect when we get them here, they're done there. They're done at every stage, and it doesn't get released till the next stage until it passes the quality side to it. Hey, when I started in golf. A Torbalata dozen golf balls. If you bought a dozen Torbaladas and you measured, the compression range was 18 points within a dozen. And that was a Titleist, which is one of the top you know, quality companies out there. So 18 points difference. Today, specs for cores and mantles are plus, uh, uh, plus or minus four. You know, where they're, in the, they're in the tighter range. Will you get a core material that gets released and it's, it's, it's at the lower side and one slips through it and it's, it's, it's nine points difference instead of eight max? It could happen, but that's not measurable in performance out there to, to pretty much anybody. So 18 points would be a big difference. Eight points is extremely small. And if it shifts a little bit on that eight points, you, you're really in a range that's not, you know, not going to be seen from a performance side to it. That's big difference. All right. A couple other things real quick uh, before we go. And that is 
Let's all talk about the rollback. Do you think it's going to happen? And if so, how does that affect snow golf? <clears throat> the rollback's been talked about since 95. Um, and I, I've been part of this discussion with the USGA for quite a few years. We actually made golf balls and sent them to them. And the, it's going to be a huge issue if it ever goes to the mass, to, to, the, to the public. Um, on tour, if you want to do something like that, you're going you're gonna to make the DJs and the, and the um, Kepkas and the long hitters win far more often. So if you take a golf ball that these guys hit today, remember the golf ball has a speed that's controlled by the USGA. The golf ball has a distance that's controlled by the USGA. So these guys playing the same clubs and the same balls hit the golf ball, you know, 20 miles an hour faster. It's the player that's hitting it 20 miles an hour faster. That's, that's probably 60 yards in difference. So if you take a golf ball now and you say, let's roll this back 25 yards, you're pushing everybody back 25 yards. So now Dustin's going to hit an eight iron and everybody else is going to hit a four iron. So the consistency of close proximity to the pin is going to get much greater for a four iron than it is an eight iron. You know? Well, you, you brought up a great point. Like the USG has a limit on things, right? So what does that do? I mean, what does the golf space look like over the next 10 years with that limit set, kind of that ceiling? You know, where does development come? Where does where is the next technological uh, advancement in golf balls when there's a limit. Well, this discussion of distance is a tour problem. It's not a, I, mean, I, I play, I'm yeah, going to play sure. when this is over, you know, with a buddy of mine and it's, it's degrees out and he play white tees, you know, he's not saying, Hey, this course is too long. It's obsolete for me. So it's a tour issue. They're freaks of nature. Um, the fitness side to it, the distance issue with the USDA today is in my opinion, four things. It's, is um, the launch conditions of the golf ball being lower launch, uh, I mean, higher launch, lower spin has increased distance. That's what pinnacles used to be. So the golf balls aren't any different than the old pinnacles with respect to launch, but the tour balls now launch like pinnacles. So that's why they go that far. The drivers are uh, sweet spots like this big. The heads are huge on them. They've controlled COR a little bit. The players are much stronger. And then the fairways, and uh, the ball's still rolling in Phoenix from last year, I think. So, you know, it's ridiculous <laughs> how far. So if you, I, I did this study, I, I know you guys got time, but I did this study at TaylorMade. I took the top five players in the world at La Costa. They used to have an event at La Costa every year. And I studied their driver distance. And the next year it rained and the course was soft. And there was 27 yards difference in distance from those five guys one year to the next. Yeah, Tony Tony and I came up with a solution for the distance problem. It's just uh, don't cut the grass, you know what I mean? <laughs> or it's as simple fairways. as that, right? So take um, the fairways and be a little yeah. thicker than on Monday when the tour is over. Let us go play because we don't, we don't have Well, if every if everything's maxed out, right, why is there going to be a 2020 ball from any company? Well, the, you know? the only thing that's maxed out is the distance. You know, I, I've always been – I spoke to the USGA about this multiple times to say, why do you have a velocity test, you know? You got a distance test. Nobody ever sits on the tee and say, oh, I just hit that ball 255 feet per second. They say, oh, they hit <laughs> yards. So, so velocity ties to distance. So if you only want the ball to go so far, they don't use the velocity test in the distance test. They, they, they measure your ball, your COR that you got, and they plug that in and run algorithms on, on distance based on spin, different spins, and they come up with how far the ball could go at, a certain, at your ball speed. So if your distance is what your factor is, let's make that it. If you put a distance cap on it, you might be able to make a golf ball for the slower swing speed players go further, you know, but the tour guys would never hit it. You might be able to make a golf ball spin more, and the tour guys would never hit it. They're up there at the end, 
but the rest of the consumer field is not anywhere near the end. So there's room to do that if they take, let's say, take away the speed part of the USG argument. And now I can make a golf ball that at slow swing speed goes fast. It's going to help the slower guys go further. But at the high swing speed, it doesn't go fast. So they, so those guys would never play it. Now you're helping. Average. And right now, right now we see a direct correlation between that, right? Swing speed and distance, you know? So how do you create a ball at a slower swing speed that goes farther but doesn't go farther at a higher swing speed? You have to read the patent. <laughs> you you got a new patent coming you, out? I tell you that I got to come come to Virginia and kill you. <laughs> yeah, it is a, well, if it's patent, it's public patent. information. So do it's you got not, a new patent? There's not patents that are out right now on it, but there's ways there's ways okay. to do it. You know, and you guys have too many followers for me to tell that secret because we we'll see it in someone <laughs> else's portfolio. Completely. But uh, but yeah, there's there's ways to do that. But right now you're limited to be able to do that because the USGA has a velocity. Gotcha. I guess that leads us to this last question. And you know, if if there if Snell Golf didn't exist, what ball do you play? <laughs> I would probably play TP five X. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, why is that? Because I I mentioned earlier about uh, Penta being you know one of the top things for me. Um, you know, I, I work at TaylorMade, so I got a little bit um, a little bit of a allegiance to TaylorMade. You know, his friends of mine still there, but. The, the, the golf ball performance, I mean, I, I they've made some minor changes to it since I've left, you know, and they've done a, a nice job with it. It's a nice product. Um, and, and to me, I, I know I can tell you the five iron spin rates, the three. I can tell you what it is throughout the whole set for the golf ball and understanding what that is. And, and it's it's a very nice product. That's, that's what I would choose for. There's no shortage in distance on it. And then you get performance, you know, tee to green with it. To, so to why, don't, why aren't there more five-piece balls on the market well there's there's some patents on it that, that prevent that you know uh so golf ball patents are good for 17 years or 20 years from the day you, you do the application side to it so you know it's only 2019 so it's only nine years so there's still a decent amount left and when we did those patents that taylor made um we, we covered a lot of stuff from the five where we did we did a lot of materials and a lot of design and a lot of development to try to get that final product and you put, if you go up, go read it, check out the description side to it, read the materials in there, it's huge. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's covered. It's a very strong golf ball pattern. All right, well, that's uh, No Putts Given, episode 18. Thanks for coming on, Dean Snell. We appreciate it. And uh, until next time, we out. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, Dean. <laughs>